Welcome to People in Profit. I'm Kate Moody. Coming up, taking a stand or losing out. Global corporations face growing pressure to weigh in on political and social issues, but do they follow through and can they still turn a profit? Rare earths are key to all sorts of technology and innovation, but their future may come from outer space. And booze-free bars with all the trimmings. Why consumers are choosing to go dry and how the drink sector is changing. When Russian troops invaded Ukraine in February, Western nations were quick to condemn Moscow and the business community followed suit. Thousands of Western corporations said they would suspend operations or cut ties with the Russian market. Many took a financial hit in the process. The exodus is just one example of global corporate citizenship. Many consumers and investors alike now expect business leaders to be world leaders. One study across 28 countries suggests more than half of respondents would buy a particular brand based on its values and beliefs. Some 60% take those into consideration when choosing a place to work. So, is taking a stand just good business sense? Let's speak now to Catherine Valvoda-Smith, executive director of the Boston College Center for Corporate Citizenship and co-author of a book on this subject. Thank you for joining us today. In the 21st century, what does being a good corporate citizen mean? In the 21st century, we're really looking at the same things that we were looking at in the 20th century and in the 19th century. It's how are we actually expressing and living our rights, responsibilities, obligations, and privileges within society. And more recently, we have started to focus on the topics of ESG, environmental, social, and government's impacts of companies in society. Are there some areas in particular where we know that companies are weighing in when it comes to geopolitical and social issues? Or conversely, are there issues that are still seen as a little bit too taboo for the corporate world? Uh, this really depends upon the company and also upon the geographic region. I mean, you can see what's happening in uh, and with uh, the most recent protests related to uh, women's rights in Iran, where companies have really stepped forward uh, in GLBTQ uh, rights, uh, companies have really stepped forward. And in other, in Black Lives Matter and in racial justice initiatives, companies have really stepped forward. Many companies have really stepped forward. So it depends on where the company feels that it is best able to express and live its values. Um, companies, of course, create impacts in these dimensions through their operations, through their CSR programs, and also through the transparency that, uh, that they exhibit in terms of where they are making positive impacts and also where they have uh, opportunities to grow. On the flip side, however, taking a stand on a divisive issue inevitably means that companies risk losing some business as well. That can be, I think, but um, where we've seen companies really land, company leaders really land, is that uh, that if they believe that the action that they're taking is important not only for um, their business, their investors, their stakeholders, their customers, but also for their employees and the communities in which they operate, and also their long-term futures, we see insurers stepping forward for example, on many insurers stepping forward on issues related to climate and to uh, the forms of energy that are being generated because they see the risk profile more more clearly maybe because of the, um, the claims that they're paying 
than some of their customers or some of, uh, you know, in the U.S. especially, um, there's a real anti-ESG kind of movement among the conservatives. And despite this, companies are stepping forward and saying, we think this is consistent with our values and important for the future financial success of our companies. I'd like to ask you specifically about the war in Ukraine. Earlier this year, we saw hundreds of Western companies saying that they would be cutting or reducing their ties with Russia after the invasion. A few months on, though, things aren't quite as cut and dry as that. Uh, The watchdog organization, the Moral Rating Agency, has accused at least a dozen of the world's biggest corporations of moral washing or misleading communications when it comes to their Russian operations. To what extent is follow through important here? Follow through is extremely important. And in a global supply chain and in global value chains, it is incredibly difficult and and time consuming and complex to be able to unwind some of these relationships. Um, You know, we see lots of financial services companies and actually a good number of retailers also have operations in Poland, which is of course is adjacent to Ukraine. And while they, you know, initially have made statements about actions that they would take related to uh, to the conflict. When you think about the impacts on your employees who are living and working in the region, it becomes more difficult and more complex to really unwind some of those relationships and to figure out how you're going to maintain commitments to the stakeholders who are going to matter to you in the long term. So I think we um, we hope that all companies are acting in good faith. We assume that companies are acting in good faith when they're making these announcements. And um, and it is a sign of the complexity of our current global economy that, that it sometimes takes time to figure out how the responses are actually going to be structured. Do profitability and corporate citizenship go hand in hand? Uh, they 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 do, and especially for first movers. Um, so what we see when we look at the finance literature is that companies who are the first to move on sustainability initiatives actually can see all kinds of benefits to their balance sheets uh, and to their stock prices because they have the advantage of being the first mover. They get a reputational advantage, and they also um, they also uh, actually. Uh, in sustainability initiatives especially tend to experience cost savings because they're using less energy, less water, less raw material, whatever whatever they're reducing. Um, and the other companies who are following, uh, eventually when that standard, when that sustainable standard of practice becomes the standard practice, um, they will have the cost of adopting those new technologies or practices, but they will not have the reputational bump because they're not the first movers. On the social impact side, um, those are those are take some more time, um, but they do result in fairly near-term increases, oftentimes when they're focused on employees. Um, so when you think about employee engagement efforts or uh, equity efforts, you can see. In, in near-ish time, a year to three, um, maybe increased innovation, productivity, retention, uh, an easier time attracting employees. So um, those benefits do come, but they take a little more time. Catherine Velvoda-Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. They're an essential part of any high-tech supply chain, as well as the shift to a green and sustainable economy. I'm talking about the 17 elements known as rare earths. 
Today, China holds a dominant position when it comes to extracting and processing them, giving Beijing an important bargaining chip on the global stage. But that quasi-monopoly could face a challenge from outer space. Charles Pellegrin joins me now. Before you explain this space connection, tell us about rare earths. What are they exactly? Rare earths are a group of uh, 17 elements that are valued for their magnetic and conductive properties. And it's hard to overestimate how important these metals are for, to a modern economy. First off, they're essential to building high-powered magnets that will help us adapt to climate change. It can be found in electric vehicles, industrial air conditioners, or wind turbines. Beyond that, they can also be used for advanced weaponry, laser technology, and nanomedical research. In actual dollar terms, the rare earths market is worth 12 to $16 billion a year. So how has China become so dominant in this industry? Well, it wasn't always this way. Before the late 80s, the U.S. was the major global player in this field. But because of lower production costs, the mining and processing of rare earths shifted towards China's developing economy. What also helped was that China at the time was less concerned about the environmental damage rare earths mining could lead to. Well, today, some estimates say China mines more than 71% of the world's rare earth metals and is responsible for 87% of the processing. They also make over 80% of global permanent magnets, and their prices are 30% cheaper. That's why China's former leader Deng Xiaoping used to say the Middle East has oil, China has rare earth metals. Now, tell us about this new discovery from outer space and how it could change things here on Earth. Well, scientists have identified one type of mineral that could be used to replace rare earths in the production of high-value magnets. Uh, it's called tetratainite and can only be found in meteorites. And now engineers at Northeastern University are working on a way to recreate this material in a lab, and they're making good progress. What could change the game is the fact that the basic materials made to recreate tetratainite are nickel and iron, which are significantly cheaper to obtain than any rare earths, whether they're mined in China or not. Charles, thanks so much for that update. Beer, wine, and spirits with all the taste, but no alcohol. Soda and juice are no longer the only option for consumers who don't imbibe or who only want to do so in moderation. The non-boozy booze market is booming, as Leo McGuinn reports. In this Paris bar, Alcohol-free aperitifs are very much the new trend. The barman is making the signature basil smash, a cocktail with real basil and lemon, but fake gin. Today, basically one in every four drinks we sell is non-alcoholic. A growing trend that these two entrepreneurs have taken advantage of. It's in this orchard in central France that they perfected their recipe. We use juice from these organic apples as the base of our drinks that allows for the drinks to be naturally sweet. Juices, as well as infusions and extracts from flowers and plants, are mixed one after the other for half an hour, before being transferred to stainless steel tanks in order to be pasteurized and tested before bottling. For the time being, it's a process which takes place in small quantities, only 2,000 bottles, all of which contain an alcoholic taste without any alcohol. It's hardly a new idea. In the 80s, the first non-alcoholic drink hit the shelves. Four decades later, and it's a trend that is exploding. 
It comes as the French drink less and less alcohol. In 1960, it was 200 litres consumed per person. By 2018, that had dropped to 80. The world's number two spirits company, Pernod Ricard, has taken it on board. Consumers are interested in alternating. They like drinking alcohol, but also non-alcoholic beverages. And it's this new trend that has led to this category and all these new options in response to a consumer need. According to experts, sales of non-alcoholic drinks are on track to double by 2026. Well, don't forget, you can find this and our previous shows on our website or as a podcast wherever you usually listen. You can also get in touch with your comments and questions on social media. Until next time, thanks for watching.